Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And there are just so many topics that are coming up in my interaction with people, uh, with different ministers in different countries. I sat down and talked with the deputy sheriff for four or five hours yesterday, and he had very interesting perspective on a great deal of things Uh and uh hopefully some of the conversation was a little bit of an eye-opener for him <laughs> as well. But I, I always find it interesting to uh talk to people from all walks of life and uh, all, you know, their their life in general formulates what they believe. How you walk this journey on this earth, in this world, will... Alter the way you perceive this world. And of course, Christ talked about people sitting in darkness and us returning to sitting in darkness again. And of course, most people who are sitting in darkness don't think they're sitting in darkness. (laughs) They think they see. They have their truth. And their understanding, and uh, they imagine that they are correct. And of course, you know, one of the, the primary things that Christ talked about all the time was humility, because you need that humility in order to admit what you previously believed was true just ain't so. And, of course, Mark Twain said it's not so much what you don't know, but what you absolutely know for sure that just ain't so that gets you into trouble. And with the gospel, that is evidently the case. Because a lot of people think that they have read the Bible and uh, that the words are there intact. They're, They're as they should be. And I can read. So, therefore, when I read it, I know the truth. But that, of course, is private interpretation. And it doesn't matter whether it's your private interpretation or the Pope's private interpretations or Billy Graham's or Joe uh, Olstein's private interpretation. Uh, It's still a private interpretation. It's what you think is true. What is true is independent of your opinion. And I've, we've watched it over the last decades where people, you know, start, you know, there are no wrong answers and your truth and my truth and no, there's only the truth. Everything else is an opinion of the truth and your opinion does not alter the truth. It may alter your relationship with the truth. You may not be able to see the truth. You may sit in darkness. You may be following blind guides. You may actually, even though you think you have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ into your heart as your personal Savior, and you say those magic words, you may actually be a worker of iniquity. And it would behoove you and everybody to 
question all things. And we're told that. And to look at things anew and to re-examine things and look at them from different angles and directions. The truth is the elephant in the room that is there whether you like it or not. It's very clear that Christ talks about people who think they are following him, think that they believe in him, think that they are doing great things in his name, are saying he is their Lord and Savior, but they're not doing what he says. And we we just looked at, you know, John 3 the other week, last week, where people are talking about, you know, being born again. And, of course, Christ is very clear that he's talking about being born again of the Spirit. Well, the what spirit? The spirit of deception? Well, no, of course, Jesus isn't talking about the spirit of deception. But we know that there are spirits of deception out there. There are liars. There are deceivers. There will be many of these deceivers who will tell you this is the truth and it's actually just their opinion. And you may believe them and you may defend them even unto your death. But uh, that doesn't make it true, what they're saying. So what is true? And of course, we have discussions. And, and actually, last week, we were talking about a particular quote in Matthew. And uh, it was, what was it? Matthew 12, verse 40. Talks about three days and three nights. This is the sign of Jonah. That They only talk about three days and three nights in a couple of places in the biblical text. And uh, actually three places altogether. I mean, there's Jonas one seventeen, where it says, uh, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And some people say that, you know, that was a whale, etc., which is not really a fish. But in the, you know, in translation, it probably would fit as a fish. There have been men who were swallowed by whales and were cut, the whale cut out and the man was in there. And I believe that the guy actually lived, but he was blind and his skin was white (laughs) because of the digestive fluids in the whale. But, you know, there are different whales. I don't know. Can you survive that? Can you survive that for three days and three nights? Wow. That would be a big thing. But that's what it talks about. In Jonas one seventeen and in Matthew twelve forty, uh, he talks about for as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so, people like I said, somebody who was in prison is in prison still. Wrote me, and this was the big question. That he wanted answered is how how does how does that work? Because it if he was if he died on Friday, that wasn't three full days and three full nights in the tomb. Because supposedly he rose on Sunday and the day after the Sabbath. And so you know this is this is the quandary that was facing this man in prison. <laughs> what? 
that is not that important. Why are you, you know, three letters, and he has never told me why he is in prison. But he, he wants to know, was Jesus actually in the tomb for three days and three nights? And, you know, in my spare time, uh, out working, occasionally I, I stop and rest. I didn't used to do that, but, uh, you know, I'm out working. The days are a little bit shorter daylight, so I'm not out as much. So I had some time to look up some of this. And, and some people in the network wrote me and they showed me what they had written. They'd done all kinds of, what's clearly hours and hours of research on the subject. And I looked at what they had to say and I read what they had to say and I think they missed it too. It's very important, they say, that we have to prove these things that are in the Bible. Why? Do we believe in the Bible or do we believe in the Holy Spirit of God? The revelation of the Holy Spirit in our heart and our mind. How can we even read the Bible and know what it says? There's a million different opinions out there, which are all private interpretations of what the Bible is trying to tell us. And and Jesus was saying, I'm not going to give you a signs. You know, I mean, he did give us signs and wonders, uh, miracles and stuff like that. But of course, people can deny all that. They can deny the Bible. But really, it doesn't matter what you believe in your head, in your intellect, in your mind. And what matters is, are you listening? Are you receiving? Are you inspired by the Holy Spirit? Because if you're not, then, then it's not, you, you haven't been born again of the Spirit. You've been born again of your intellectual ability to read the Bible. And, you know, I've read a lot of the Bible. I've read a lot of the history of the time. I've looked at the original languages. I've looked at, you know, both the Greek and the Hebrew. And and Jonas 1.17, of course, was written in Hebrew. But Matthew 12.40, for what we see as the Bible translations, was originally written in Greek. And Matthew may have originally written his text in Greek, although he was a Jew and probably knew Hebrew and he was writing his gospel specifically for Jews which is why he has a lot of things in Matthew you don't find in Mark, Luke or John and yet there Mark, Luke and John didn't even think it was important to mention some of the things that Matthew mentions but it is now a tenant of the faith of people it's like People, you know, somebody complained just the other day to that supposedly I don't preach the Trinity. You don't hear me using the word Trinity very often. But, of course, none of the Gospels include the word Trinity. <laughs> so, uh, And the reason I avoid the word Trinity is people have so many different opinions of what they call the Trinity, and it's not even mentioned in the Bible. Now, the Holy Spirit is mentioned, and I talk about that all the time. Uh, Jesus Christ, uh, the Son of God, the, the only begotten Son of our Father who art in heaven. I mention Him all the time. I mention God all the time. I think they are one, 
in the same to one degree or another, but exactly what that means, it's, even in, in the use of the word Trinity, is supposedly a mystery. And you want me to believe in your opinion of a mystery. <laughs> and you want me to say that I believe in these words that you use to describe your opinion of a mystery. And it's an easy, Ollie Ollie Olson free kind of approach to the truth. Because it, it becomes, what you really want me to do is say, I believe in your truth. Your opinion of the truth. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the God of creation. I believe that there is no way that I have found in all my readings and studies that is more clear than the way, which is what Christianity used to be called, the way of Jesus Christ. And I believe that he died that the whole world might be saved. But I don't think the whole world will be saved because the whole world has their truth. And their truth is not the same as the truth because much of the world today lives in darkness. They don't want to see that. And of course the Bible tells us, you know, when we were going through Matthew and going through John, you know, John 3, where it's talking about seeing this born again of the Spirit. You know, when they're talking about that in... Um, John 3, 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, born of water, he's not talking about baptism. He's talking about your natural, fleshly, born of water birth. That's what he's talking about. But he's also saying that you have to be born again of the Spirit. And this is why John says, you know, I'm only baptizing you with water. But there's one that comes after me who baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. And we, we've got lots of articles up. And we've talked about the fact that baptism was a jurisdictional change. You, you were either baptized at the laver by the, the priests that followed the high priest of Israel at that time that was in Jerusalem. Or you were baptized by John the Baptist out there on the Jordan River. And so who was the true and actual high priest of Israel at that time? Well, that, of course, that's debated. You're not allowed to debate it if you were a member of the temple. If you had joined the Corbin of the Pharisees, that's how you determine your membership. Were you registered through the synagogues that were operating under the authority of the high priests of Caiaphas or the sons of Ananias who had preceded Caiaphas? Or were you baptized of John? By what authority was John baptizing? They didn't want to talk, but this was a debate that came up. If you don't understand the politics of the time, the events of the time, you will read that and miss how important that is. Because Jesus did not go to the temple to be baptized. 
He went to John to get baptized. And John said, you don't even need baptism. And Jesus said, yeah, but just so that everything is clear, that I'm going to be baptized by the authority of John because I see John as the lawful high priest. Almost immediately after that, Jesus appoints 70 to go out. Well, that's 70... Why is that so significant? Why 70? I remember asking that, you know, over half a century ago in the seminary. Why 70? I mean, they're telling us this number, 70. Well, that's Jesus' Sanhedrin. (laughs) And why did Jesus get to appoint 70? Because Jesus was the king. And the king who was literally had the right to be king and high priest, although he allowed John the Baptist to be the high priest. And John the Baptist was the high priest until they cut off his head. And then by default, by the laws of the biblical text, which even Pompey wanted to read and understand the laws of the biblical text, (laughs) when he came to Jerusalem, he said, well, show me your laws. And they brought out the Torah. And he understood things probably better than most of the modern churches and Christians who are out there, who even the ones that we have somebody who's on a program before our afternoon show, and they're saying Paul is in apostasy, Paul is a false prophet, and Paul this and Paul that, and they consider themselves, I guess, Messianic Jews. They're following the Torah and believe in Jesus Christ. But they don't seem to understand the Torah as well as Pompey understood it. And that's that's back to the blind guides sitting in darkness. They don't seem to have the Holy Spirit. I mean, they seem like nice people, but they don't get it. They have their truth. It's just not the truth. And I see contradictions all the time. Occasionally I listen to part of their program before I go on the air. And I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, oh my goodness. But, you know, there's only so many hours in my day. I can't address all these things. But if we go back to John and we're looking at uh, the different sections of uh, that gospel, John third, which we, our last week programs were on that. And, uh, He talks about the wind bloweth where it listeth, which is another way of saying the spirit listeth where it wills. And you cannot will the spirit to come to you. You're you're not in charge. But it's the spirit that brings the light and understanding. And it's what Christ promised. He didn't say, I'll have the guys write a Bible so that you will know the truth. No, he said, I will send a comforter, the Holy Spirit, so that you will know the truth. Now, I don't have any objection to the Bible. I think it's a great book, fascinating book, fascinating history of all the different books and how they fit together. And I think that that is something to do with this power of God to bring things into conformity that he is not done creating because in the universe he created, he created the law of cause and effect that allows, you know, that even though if you make an effort to hide the truth, 
distort the truth, to twist the truth. It will come back and show itself to be the truth. It will come back and reveal itself somehow to you. And people spend a lot of money trying to avoid seeing that truth. So this spirit, this is where it wills. And Nicodemus did not understand how he would be born again of the Spirit. But somehow or other, he was there at night. He came at night, probably at the risk of persecution from his fellow Sanhedrin members. Because he was not at that time a member of the Sanhedrin of Christ. He was a member of the Sanhedrin of Caiaphas and the other apostate uh, government of Judea, which Jesus said, I'm going to take the government away from you. He said that in the beginning. I'm going to take the kingdom, the government, away from the Pharisees. Why? Because of things like their Corbin, making the word of God did not affect. Somebody locally wrote, talking about not complying and that we need to fight these mandates. I guess a new series of mandates are going to roll out in the state of Oregon. I hear that from my inside sources uh, come Monday. But uh, the the reality is is that, uh, and I wrote it to him and to all the people that are, he's got a large following. And uh, I've known this guy since he was a little kid. And uh, he's got a good heart. But the reality is, I said, you know, you might want to consider repenting first (laughs) before you talk about non-compliance. Because if you don't repent, you're still in non-compliance with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said we were not to be like the governments of the Gentiles. And what, what, what's the Gentiles? The word Gentile when you see that word, most of the time when you see that word in the text, it's from a Greek word that means other nations. And I point this out. The Jews were Gentiles to the Romans. Yeah, that's right. The Jews were Gentiles to the Romans. Because to the Romans, the Jews was another nation. And that's what Gentile ethnos. It means other nations. The Gentiles didn't call themselves Gentiles. <laughs> they called themselves Romans or or whatever country they were from, whatever nation they were from. And Peter, uh, Paul uh, talks about, you know, we're no more Greek or Roman. We're now Christians. We're following the way. Jesus says, I appoint unto you, to the little flock, I appoint unto you a kingdom, a government. Christianity was literally a nation. And we're going to look at that today. Exactly what I mean by Christianity is a nation. Does it qualify under the definition of a nation? Well, we need to take a look at the definition of a nation. (laughs) So, early, early, early this morning, I went back to our page on nation or nationalism. And I looked at it, and we'll look at that when we come back. So, welcome back to Keys to the Kingdom. So, as we were talking about John, but we're going to go into this concept of nationalism and what it is, because uh, there was also questions coming to me about 
nationalism and uh, should we be should Christians divorce themselves from nationalism? Uh, well, that's almost like uh, to to divorce yourself from nationalism would be like to divorce yourself from Christ <laughs> and the kingdom of God, because the kingdom of God was at hand. A kingdom was appointed to the apostles. They went around saying there is another king doing contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Legally doing contrary to the decrees of Caesar because they said there is another king, one Jesus. And uh, we have people still to this day, uh, someone I know for a long time now was in somebody's home and they were requiring... That he said, uh, well, somebody in the home, it wasn't the homeowner, was requiring that he say that he had accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. And he resisted being forced to say that because, well, honestly, I believe it was because he didn't know what they meant by that. Because they had not accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They had accepted Let's see, who was it at that time? I think it was Trump at that time as their Lord and Savior. <laughs> you have to remember that Augustus Caesar's name was not Augustus, nor was his name Caesar. <laughs> his name was Octavius. Augustus Caesar are titles. And those titles meant that he was the Savior. Augustus means Savior of the people. And literally, Savior of the Republic. Yet, no one probably did more up until that point in time, they did more later on, to kill the Roman Republic than Augustus himself. He murdered the Republic with his revolution. And of course, it was bound to happen because, like I say, we live in a cause and effect universe and by fighting Caesar, who was about to become the first emperor of Rome, and stabbing him in the chest, you know, at Dubute, stabbing Julius Caesar in the chest and killing him, so that you would prevent a demise of the Republic, brought your Republic into greater jeopardy than it had ever been since its beginning, you know, four or five hundred years before when they threw out the Tarquinian kings in the Roman Revolution. Yeah, the Romans had a revolution where they threw off the king, much like the United States threw off the king of Great Britain. Although we had, you know, I don't know the specifics of exactly why they thought they could throw off the Tarquinian kings, but evidently, through some sort of unwarranted usurpation of this king, they thought that they had a right to throw him off. And they may have. The details are a little foggy this far in the future <laughs> of that date. Because that was, you know, 500 years before Christ. And uh, now we're, so that's 2,500 years ago. But in America, and we've written a lot about that, there was a legitimate reason to terminate the power of the king over the United St- over America, I should say, because there was no United States at that time, uh, because not because we were revolting against the king, but because the king was revolting against us. What America had done, what Americans had done, uh, 
is become fiercely independent. Their colonial charters were written in such a way that no law could be made in America except by the consent of the free man. And the free man was the landed men, the men who actually owned land in America. And people, even though it was small amounts, often, they made a great determination to actually own the land. They knew they... By definition, a freeman had to own land and they sacrificed their lives and their toil for years and years and years so that they could own land. All that has gone at the wayside. And there's a question as whether or not you have enough actual freemen in America to even have a republic. But I get ahead of myself because we will take a look at republics because that's one of the other big problems uh, actually this week where somebody in a local valley, a nearby valley, was saying the United States is a republic. But that's not what the American creed says. That There's a creed that was passed in 1913 in Congress that says, I believe because, I mean, it's it's like a religious document. (laughs) I believe in the United States, a democracy within the republic. The, The truth is, American citizens have abandoned the republic and engaged in the deeds of the Nicolaitans and have become a conquered people and are no longer citizens of a republic. They may be residents into some remains of the republic, but they're citizens of a democracy. Because the United States, by reading the Constitution, is clearly an indirect democracy. Now, originally, see, this is the point, is that you can't just read the Constitution. You can't just read the Bible. You you have to read them in the context of time. We covered this, you know, last week when we talked about the use of this word master in reference to Nicodemus. The word there that they translate master in the King James Bible is not actually the normal word for master. I'm not saying it's incorrect, but it can lead to confusion on the part of the people. Because Nicodemus was not a master. He was a teacher. And that's the word that is actually used there. And translated teacher most other places. He wasn't a ruler, master, owner of the people. The ownership... Now, many of the people of Judea at that time were literally merchandise already. They were owned. Their labor belonged to the government. And they labored without pay because they got some pay, but for a period of time, every year they labored and a portion of that labor went to the government. They were literally back in the bondage of Egypt because of the dark interpretations of the Torah by the Pharisees at that time. They had substituted the symbols of the truth with rituals about the truth. And they unmoored the truth itself from those symbols. And so their rituals and ceremonies were making the word of God to none effect. And Christ said so. Your Corbin is making the word of God to none effect. 
and causing people to do no more ought for their children. And people read this and they don't have any idea what is going on. And when I wrote to the people on Facebook, they were talking about not complying and fighting against what they see as tyranny. I said it would probably be a good idea if you repented first. <laughs> so so uh, I thought that would catch their attention. And it probably did. But then I, I pointed out that the choices we made back in the days of FDR has created the present that we are now experiencing. The same government created by FDR to give you everything you want has actually and is actually the government that is now taking away everything you have because Jefferson said it hundreds of years ago, centuries ago. The government that can give you everything you want has the power has the power to give you everything you want, has the power to take away everything you have. And that's what you're seeing. Because since at least FDR, you have looked to the government to take care of the needy of your society, the widows and orphans of your society. And the government does this by exercising authority and forcing the contributions of the people. And you thought that was okay, even though Jesus said it's not okay. So, you've moved from the nation that was a republic into a democracy within that republic. And within that democracy which now can impose duties and obligations upon you. See, they're not capable of an American revolution like that one that took place uh, hundreds of years ago. It actually took place 300 years ago. I mean, Cromwell was sending troops to protect the American Republic back long before 1776, back in the 1600s. So we were already republics back then. What made us a republic? Uh, There was certain allegiance to the king still going on. And we talked about that in our article on the pilgrims. You know, they, they tried to avoid the allegiance to a lie, to deception to actual criminal activity, like Brutus stabbing Caesar. That was not the solution. You need to fight the way Christ fought. Christ's kingdom was not of the world. His welfare system was not of the Corbin of the Pharisees. He took care of the needy of his society, I'm using certain words that we will see in our examination of nationalism, of his society were provided through faith, hope, and charity. Not the force of Gabi and Mokas, uh priests of Israel, uh, of Judea. And I've added to that as well uh, uh, we have a page on Gabi and Mokas or Mokash, uh, who were tax collectors. They, they, if you looked up the word Gabi today, 
it's actually in uh, the way in which uh, Jews use the term today. Uh, it is someone who helps people read the Torah in the synagogue. Uh, but that's not what it meant 2,000 years ago. It actually meant a tax collector. <laughs> so, and Mokesh is similar. Matthew was probably uh, this... Uh, or not... Not necessarily Matthew. I have to go back and look at that. Is it was it Matthew? Was it tax collector? The one Matthew um, was a tax collector. He was probably a mokish. There was a greater mokish and a lesser mokish. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, back to let's finish up with uh, our quick look at John as that. Uh, we talked about it as well as that everyone who reads John 3 should also read uh, John 3.20. Uh, or even we start at 19. And I'll read it one more time and then we'll get into nationalism. And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world. And men loved darkness rather than light. Because their deeds were evil. So they loved the darkness because their deeds were evil. And those evil deeds are the deeds of the Nicolaitan, which God hates. Now, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that that world might be saved. The people in that world might be saved. Not the deeds. They had to repent of the deeds. And this is what I was talking to the people who want to not comply and, and fight against these mandates. Their deeds are still evil. Their deeds, they're still looking to the same government they want to fight for their welfare, for their public education, take care of my parents who are collecting Social Security uh, that has been bankrupt since it began. It's always been bankrupt. Social Security has never, ever, 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 ever been solvent. That's, that's, the record is clear. Now what you hear in the news may not be clear, but, and you've had a real wake up call during this so-called pandemic that you can't trust the news. From the Covington kids to the Rittenhouse affair to to uh, the elections to uh, the insurrection, that the news is misrepresenting the truth all the time. Well, they they didn't just start that two years ago. <laughs> that was one of the things the sheriff deputy was. He had somebody who died of cancer. They were supposed to die in June or July. They made it to the end of August and the first of September, I think, somewhere around there. And then they died. And they, the, the sheriff's department made a report on the death. And this officer was the guy who made the report. He knew the guy. He knew that he had this terminal cancer. He was down to 90 pounds. And he died. And somebody called up a month or so later, I don't know, some period of time later from the health department and said that you wrote down the cause of death. The, the coroner actually said the cause of death was the cancer. And they wanted him to change that <laughs> to COVID. <laughs> and he said, well, that's ridiculous. And he said, well, in the future, 
that because why? Because somebody in his household supposedly tested positive for COVID. There was no evidence that he had it, but they needed to count that as a COVID death because somebody sometime within 30 days of him dying had COVID or tested positive. They don't even know that he didn't have, he wasn't sick, but he tested positive. And they wanted to change it. Well, you know, if you're doing that and they're, they're actually going to all the trouble to call up the sheriff's department and the coroner's office to try to get them to change these things and change the way in which they report these deaths, this is how you get this huge rise in, and count of deaths from COVID. It, and they've never ever done this before. And we saw that we reported it. Years ago, or almost two years ago, when they were first coming out that they're counting the deaths different than they'd ever counted them ever in the history of America counting deaths. And that's how they got the high number. Now the number is going up. And I, I shared with, you know, a story about you know, stillbirths. Stillbirths, we were seeing them. I was getting reports from people in the medical industry and, uh, you know, in hospitals that stillbirths were on the rise. And we were getting figures like 50% higher. And uh, specifically amongst the vaccinated are having stillbirths. And so it was there really an increase. Well, just in the parliament in Canada, in Ontario, they're pointing out that in one particular town alone, that normally have five to six stillbirths in a given year, have had 83 or 86, 80-something, I can't remember exactly, stillbirths in six months, which would lead you to believe that by the end of the year, they'll have over 160 stillbirths, and they normally only have five or six. That's cause for concern. And this is almost exclusively amongst the vaccinated. And this is why this parliamentarian is bringing this up. And, and of course, now that, that should hit the headlines everywhere. But your news people, your mountains of Samaria, those who listen regularly know what I'm talking about, are lying to you and deceiving you. And... This deception, like I said, didn't begin two years ago. It's been going on for centuries. Deception in your churches. Deceptions in the people who write the books. The people who run the schools. And the people who are taught. Who are the teachers of your society. They become the masters of the minds of your children. Because they teach their truth, not the truth. So, anyway, we need to become so more educated, more, uh, more information, so that when we read these words, we know what they mean. When Jesus says, and, and John the Baptist says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, he's talking about Christian nationalism. He's talking about Judaic nationalism. The real nationalism. 
Now, what do I mean by nationalism? So we need to explore that term. When you got baptized by John, that was a changing of the jurisdiction of the person who was baptized. That's why they're asking John and asking about... Jesus asked the Pharisees, by what authority did John baptize? And they didn't want to say. Because they were baptizing people into the temple at Jerusalem. They they even had people, because, you know, like I said, uh, Herod did not just build the temple at Jerusalem. He also built the temple of Roma. And you could sign up for the temple of Roma. Probably didn't do a baptism. I don't have any evidence that they used a baptism, but you were signing up. When you signed up for the temple of Jerusalem, you got baptized. That was their tradition. Baptism was a jurisdictional outward sign that you were signing up for a system of religion. And, of course, religion was how you took care of the needy of your society. FDR set up public religion for the United States. There was very little public religion around for the United States. Now, what do I mean by public religion? He was going to take care of the widows and orphans of your society through his system of social security. And you signed up and you had to sacrifice every payday. A portion of your labor had to go to the government so that they would have funds to fund their public religion, their the way in which they took care of their daily ministration, the way in which they took care of the needy of their society. This is the way the Pharisees were doing it. This is the way FDR was doing it. This is the way Augustus Caesar did it. If you don't know history, you won't recognize this pattern of behavior in the nation of Rome, in the nation of Judea, or in the nation of Christ, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's a nation that had a daily ministration to take care of the widows and orphans. They did it unspotted by the world of Rome, unspotted by the world of the Pharisees. They did not take the benefits provided by men who exercised authority one over the other because Christ forbid it, and Christ was the king. Jesus said it was not to be that way with you, so the early church, it was not that way with them. The modern church can't say that. They say that they believe in Jesus Christ and they have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But if they want anything, they go to men who exercise authority and say, give us benefits. Give us benefits at the expense of our neighbor. And give us benefits at the expense of our children and our neighbor's children because we know you are borrowing money to give us stimulus checks, to give us social security payments, to give us Medicare, Medicaid, welfare, public education. All these wonderful benefits, these gifts, gratuities, and benefits that come from the system of government that we have created for ourselves 
that engages in covetous practices, taking away from our neighbor so that we can have more stuff. And then now you want to complain about a government that wants to take more stuff than you want to give? It wants to take more power than you want to relinquish? Early Americans had learned to take care of one another. And they did not depend upon the king. Because they had another king, one Jesus. Early Christians could say the same thing. Modern Christians can't say that. Because they have, and they don't see it. Because they sit in darkness. They have not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They have received false teachings. So much so that they believe a lie. So anyway, we definitely will start our article on nationalism when we come back to Keys to the Kingdom after this brief break. So don't go away so you can find out about the nationalism of the Kingdom of God. Be right back. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. And in order to seek the Kingdom of God and His righteousness, you need to understand, you need to receive the Holy Spirit, and you need to do what Christ actually said to do. And one of the things he said to do is that his ministers were to make the people sit down in a network of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. And so we make that possible that you can do that or we facilitate that process of seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness, of sitting down in those tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands by joining the network and finding a congregation near you uh, or forming a congregation where you're at. And then making that a congregation of record so that other people in your area that fall upon, uh, the, uh, our teachings and our, and what we share falls upon their ears, they can find you and join your congregation or congregations near you. And then you can link them up as the early church was and it will help prepare those true believers who are seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness for the decline and fall of the Roman Empire or the modern Roman Empire. Because the modern church is not preparing people for that. And I talked to somebody in Idaho who's wanting to form uh, that congregation and start getting things going. And so if you're in the Idaho area or near the Idaho border, get a hold of us, join the network and we will connect you up. We have people in Texas. We have people in North Dakota. We have people in Florida. We have people in New York. We have people in Australia. And we have people all over that are beginning to seek that kingdom of God and his righteousness. And we will continue to broadcast as often as we can to help clarify some of these words that have been a means of deception. So that you can see what they actually meant when Christ said them, when Paul said them, when, you know, uh, Peter said them, why Peter said through covetous practices they will make merchandise of you. In other words, return you to the bondage of Egypt where you become human resources for the government of Pharaoh or the government of whoever. Uh, whether it's the government in Australia or the government, because there seems to be a concerted effort all around the world to lock down the people make, who have already become dependent upon systems 
that are contrary to the way, to the way that Christ taught. Because Christ said we should have a daily ministration that operated on faith, hope, and charity. Caesar said we can have a ministration based on force, fear, and fealty. Uh, but Jesus said such systems, like Herod set up with the Pharisees, makes the word of God to none effect. Because we live in this cause and effect universe. If you want to change the effects of the last hundred years that has brought you to this particular point in time, you need to repent, think differently, and perform different deeds than what you've been performing so that you can make the Word of God to effect and the Holy Spirit may list it where it will and it will list into your heart and mind and give you eyes to see and ears to hear. So anyway, with that, get a hold of us to join the network. That's very important. And uh, and help us make that network grow by taking the faithful time to sit down in a network that is trying to learn what it means to love your neighbor as yourself and to love the way of Christ. So anyway, I promise you that we would get into nationalism. So nationalism is said to be a patriotic feeling or principles or efforts and has been defined as an extreme form of this patriotic feeling, principles or efforts, especially marked by a feeling of superiority over other countries. Now, that's... Well, I would say that's more recently become predominant in this idea of nationalism. and But it has been around forever, but it is not always the case. Uh, that's why they make reference to the fact that, uh, where they say, especially marked by a feeling of superiority. It doesn't always have to be that way. Because that's certainly the nationalism of the kingdom of God. That's they're, they're not trying to be superior over each other or over anybody else. They are trying to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And if they have the heart of Christ, they want to see the whole world seeking that same characteristic of the way of Christ. Which it follows the principles of Christ. And the efforts of Christians. Because Christians do have... Christ didn't say there is no burden in seeking the kingdom of God. He said, my burden is light, but there is a burden. He used words like strive, persevere, put your hand to the plow, and don't take it off. Uh, So, this is a journey. Seek this righteousness of God. And the modern church has been telling you, oh, you don't have to do that. You just say these words and then you can go do any kind of work of iniquity and you're still saved. And But that's not what John says. That's not what uh, Matthew says. That's not what Paul says. And But it's what a lot of the modern Christians say because they pick and choose what they're going to tell you. And you evidently are okay with picking and choosing as to what you want to hear or see. So this nationalism can be simply uh, be this advocacy 
of political independence for a particular country. You want this political independence. And I'll probably add a lot more to this, but you have to remember that Paul is using uh, words, polytuma, that has to do with the administration of public affairs. Christianity was very political. It wasn't electing a new Caesar because it had a king already. Uh, is And it wasn't trying to get certain programs instituted in the Roman government. But they had a politics within the kingdom of God. But the power of the politics was never vested in individuals who would exercise authority one over the other. They wouldn't have somebody dictating what they could think or believe or what they were to say. Their doctrines of the early church were the doctrines of Christ. If Christ didn't say it, they didn't say it. They didn't need to create, you know, new uh, creeds of faith and all these kinds of things that you see coming out of some of these councils, like the Council of Milan and Council of Trent and all these kinds of things. And, and we have a page on Constantine and that leads to other articles that show you that that church established by Constantine was drastically different than the early church. And it wasn't advocated by most of the early church. It was actually avoided by most of the early church. You would think that that these councils were all the bishops and ministers getting together and making the decision to have this creed or this idea or this principle or effort. In reality, from the very beginning, it was a minority of people who came and showed up. And, you know, the first meeting had about 300 people show up, probably not all bishops. And and some of them left before the meeting was even over. But the very next meeting they had, only half as many people showed up. And I will lay you odds that most of those who showed up were the false Christians who were told by Constantine to get baptized with no mention of repentance. This is why I was saying to that group, you know, you want to see a change in the way the government is treating you, you need to have a change in you, that you need to think differently. Because for... Almost a century, we've been thinking it's okay to covet our neighbor's goods through the agency and power and authority of governments. It's okay to become accustomed to living at the expense of others and depending for our livelihood on the property of others. And that is not okay with Christ. And it was not okay with Polybius 150 years before Christ because he said it's going to degenerate you as a people. You'll be so weak... You will not be able to not comply. You will not be able to fight against the corruption. Because you yourselves have become corrupt. Because you were not having the principles of Christ in your quest for nationalism. Because you didn't understand the kingdom of God. So... This idea of nationalism has to do with a nation. So what is the definition of a nation? The word nationalism came from the word nation, which is in turn from this Latin word, natio, which was simply a native. 
uh, you know, with a common ancestry or place of birth. You know, you were born in this area and that made you a part. Abraham said he was going to get out of the nativity of his family. His family got out of Ur and took possession of themselves. We've talked about this before. Terah took possession of his family and left Ur and started Haran. But Abraham was left with this feeling that I need to leave even Haran. I have to get out of my family is still setting up a city-state that did not have the same principles of God. But he, he was still trying to figure it all out. But that's what Abraham was doing. He was going out of his family. He, he was heir to the throne of Haran and chose to leave. Like I said, Moses was the literal heir to the throne in Egypt. But he chose to leave. And they both were setting up altars. And altars were a place where you practice your religion. And we have articles on the word altar. That these altars were actually systems of social welfare. They weren't just burning up sheep and burning up sacrifices or vegetables or whatever you wanted to sacrifice on the altar. These And the altars weren't made of dead stone, but were made of living stone, a gathering of men, a gathering of stones, same word in the Hebrew. So these altars of stone would receive the contributions of the people and take care of the needy. And this bound the people together in a system of faith, hope, and charity so that when an invading army came, they had the strength to fight against that army. They had the means to fight against that army. Because they were already united in a network of faith, hope, and charity. So, when we look at this word nationalism, is this nationalism in the sense with the values, the principles of Christ, the principles of Moses, the principles of Abraham, the principles of God, or are they other principles that allow for our covetous practices? Because if... The government you are a part of, that you look to, that you apply to, that you pray to for benefits, even pray to for justice and mercy, is it built in the nature of God or some other nature like the nature of Nimrod? Because what Abraham was doing was not the nature of Nimrod. So anyway, this this Nazio, which was a native or uh, with a common ancestry or place of birth, uh, could mean both an aggregate of the inhabitants of a place or a geographical area or a government with a common collective identity with mutual history, common systems of law, and traditions, and a single language, uh, common values, uh, social virtues, political interaction, and a system of welfare. So what Christ was doing right away, he knew that if he's going to preach the kingdom of God, if he's going to take the kingdom of God away from the Pharisees, he's going to appoint it to another little flock, which all of which he did. One of the very first things he had to do was set up a system of welfare. And, of course, if it was going to be a free nation, the system of social welfare 
had to be set up by free will offerings. Because if it was forced offerings, as we were seeing with the Mokesh and Gabai of the Pharisees, if it was these forced offerings, it was going to make the word of God to none effect and it was not going to produce a free society. In America, according to Tocqueville and other historians and the, and the political record, most all the welfare of America, all the schools of America, including public schools, were not created by taxation, but were created by free will offerings. Produced a different kind of person. Occasionally you would see people like, you know, we, we have the article up at Preparing You. You can go look it up on David Crockett. And David Crockett thought it was okay, or he, he was kind of fooled into thinking it was okay to take tax dollars and set up a system of welfare on a limited basis. And he was scolded by Horatio Bunce that no, that that's not the purpose of government. It is today, but back then, in the 1800s, people knew that you can't do it that way. You had to do it through charity or you would not be a free nation. Christ knew that and was preaching that. Peter says that if you covet these benefits by men who exercise authority one over the other, you will become human resources. You will become merchandise. You will re-enter the bondage of Egypt. This is explained in detail in the gospel. But your blind guides just pass over it. Ignore it. Because they sit in darkness, they will have you sit in darkness. So, this, this nation has, you know, a common system of laws and tradition. What laws? Statutory laws? Or the common law? Because the common law is not subject to statute. The common law exists outside of statute. Statute is like equity and, and, and systems within uh, trust systems. Another long story. We'll cover that when we talk about republics. But the early church, they knew. They had the Ten Commandments. And it tells us in John that if you love Christ, you'll keep the commandments. And Christ says that if you keep these two commandments of loving thy God, the Father, the Creator, and loving thy neighbor as thyself, all the other commandments just fall into place. And we know, I mean, it's just obvious that to force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare is not love. It's covetousness. But your modern churches say that's okay. The early church had a daily ministration of welfare based on faith, hope, and charity. The modern church has very little charity. Most of the people that are receiving the benefits of the forced contributions of their neighbor are not dependent upon charity. So I include another definition in here in this, this, you know, uh, people occupying the same country and creating this. A nation, Bovier Law Dictionary, uh, back in 1856 edition, does not have an entry for nationalism. They didn't even put it in the dictionary. But they do have a definition of nations, and they actually have several of them. And we can take a look at each one of them to get a little bit better idea of what nationalism might include 
by understanding this word nation. So a, a nation or state, so they're putting these together, are independent body politics. And of course the early Christian church was an independent body politic. If they owed the tax, they paid the tax, but they could actually do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, at least the apostles certainly could, and not violate the law. They could do contrary to the decrees of Caesar because they claimed there was another king. And of course we know Christ took the kingdom away from the Pharisees and appointed it to the apostles. But the apostles were also restricted in the constitution of Jesus Christ, we could say, restricted that they could not exercise authority one over the other. They could exercise love. They could exercise charity. But they could not exercise authority. They could not force the contributions of the people. Constantine thought that was okay to force the contributions of the people. And he took monies, billions of dollars, equivalent to billions of dollars, that he had taken from other people by the force of the sword and was handing it out to his new church that he was starting. And people were electing bishops of Milan. And we tell about that. But this idea of a nation or state are independent body politics Societies of men united together for the purpose of promoting their mutual safety and advantage by the joint efforts of their combined strength. Now that's the kingdom of God. But how do they have this? They are promoting the mutual safety and advantage by the joint efforts. But those efforts are free will efforts. They're based on charity. And that charity is their strength. So that would make the kingdom of God, the early church, a nation. Because they came together to promote pure religion, taking care of the needy, and providing a certain amount of safety. Jesus said that we were to be attending, the Pharisees were to be attending, so certainly we were to be attending, to the weightier matters. And and most modern preachers can't even tell you what the weightier matters are, even though you would think that that would be way up on their list if they're following Christ. If somebody asks you to recite the words that you accept the Lord Jesus Christ into your pers- into your heart as your personal Savior or some structure of a phrase similar to that, ask them what the weightier matters of this Lord Jesus Christ consist of. Most of them will not be able to tell you what Jesus called the weightier matters. So how can he be their Lord if they don't even know what he says we should be attending to as the weightier matters? And the second definition of nation is, but every combination of men who govern themselves independently of all others will not be considered a nation. So, that would be important to understand what he means by this, this definition means by this, because maybe the kingdom of God is not a nation. Even though Jesus is constantly referring to the Gentiles, the other nations, as we said earlier, that's what the word Gentile means. It means other nations. 
So he's talking to his apostles, appointing them a kingdom so that they would be a nation of Christians. A peculiar kind of nation, but still a nation of Christians. It goes on in the definition. A body of pirates, for example, who govern themselves are not a nation. Why would that be? And did the pirates actually govern? Well, yeah, they had accords. They had rules. They had a way in which to divide up the booty and loot. And they wrote it down. And you had to sign the articles of the pirates to be a pirate. So it, they were governing themselves. But they were missing an important ingredient. Is that they had to... You know, actually care about other nations. He says to constitute a nation, another ingredient is required. The body thus formed must respect other nations in general and each of their members in particular. Such a society has her affairs, they're referring to society as a her, has her affairs and her interests. She deliberates and takes resolution in common, thus becoming a moral person who possesses an understanding and will uh, and will peculiar to herself, an understanding and will peculiar to herself, and is susceptible of obligations and rights. Remember, if you become accustomed to living at the expense of others and depending for your livelihood on the property of others, you will degenerate as a society. If you accept obligations and rights that are imposed upon you by the God of creation, in other words, susceptible of those obligations and rights, a different set of events will occur, cause and effect universe. The present regimes that seem to be taking away your rights, usurping rights all the time, are having the power to do that because you have usurped the rights of your neighbor. Through that becoming accustomed to taking away from your neighbor so that you can have free education, free health care, you know, take care of my parents for me. So I have to do no more for my parents. All this is why you are now suffering tyranny. And and that quote from Polybius, which I've referenced now several times, not only will you degenerate as a people, but you will institute the rule of force and violence. You know, institute your own mokas and gabai to take away from your neighbor so that you can have more free stuff. You will do that. That degenerates you and makes you Perfect savages finding once more a monarch and a king. You know, back to that's what he was saying 150 years before Christ, because he was seeing that Rome was going to head back to the Tarquinian kings and lose their position as a republic. Now, when we start looking at what a republic is, hopefully you will start to put that together. I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to tickle your ears. I'm going to tell you the inconvenient truths 
so that you will begin to understand what you miss that brought you to the new normal. And that's where you need to be. Attending to the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith, seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We'll be right back. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So this susceptible obligation and rights that they're talking about in this definition of nations, uh, we're referring to nations as a society in the feminine as her affairs and her interests uh, is something that we'll have to look closely at in order to get an understanding of nationalism you need to understand nation. In order to understand nation, is is a kingdom a nation? Well, we're supposed to be seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what is righteousness but our values? Uh, are they the values of God? Are they beliefs of God? And uh, this is one of the things is that they talk about patriotism and nationalism. Nationalism has more to do with the background, including language and heritage, but patriotism has more to do with an emphasis on values and beliefs. So, when somebody asked, like I said, asked if we should do away with the idea of nationalism in order to be a Christian, maybe you need to do away with patriotism uh, more so than that, even nationalism in order to be a Christian because... Certain patriots don't have the same values as Christ. They certainly don't have the same beliefs of Christ. And of course now there are a lot of people who say they do believe in Christ. They've accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. If you have a Lord and Savior, if you have King Jesus, why are you electing a new king? Or a new president or a new prime minister? That if you actually go the way of Christ, you will have the means by which is necessary to become a free nation. So it's a combination of nationalism and patriotism, what we're talking about here. But again, we're really talking about the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So the last definition, which is kind of interesting, and I will equate it to biblical references... But it's clearly written, this is 1856 dictionary, and of course some of those definitions were written long before 1856, but this is clearly a reference to the fact of the American Revolution. It belongs, he says, this nation, it belongs to the government to declare whether they will consider a colony which has thrown off the yoke of the mother country another female reference, referring to mother country, as an independent state. And until the government has decided on the question, courts of justice are bound to consider the ancient state of things as remaining unchanged. And they give several court references which you can go and read. But what they're saying is that a colony doesn't become a state simply because it thinks it threw off this yoke of Great Britain. But it's saying that the government must declare whether they will consider a colony which has uh, thrown off this yoke of the mother country as an independent state. And of course they went to the King of England 
to see if he would recognize us as independent states. And he sort of did. But when they say this power belongs to the government, are they talking about the government of the state or the mother country, the government of the mother country? Well, in both cases, this was the way it was in America. But when it was that way in America, there was no United States. So it's not the United States that decides this. It's the individual states. And we will get into that in great detail when we look at republics. Because the early church was considered a republic. Early Israel was considered a republic. And the truth is, Abraham's altars were the foundation of a free republic even back then. And this is this is actually in dictionaries and encyclopedias. It's not something I'm making up. Rome knew the history of Abraham, knew the history of Israel. When in 500 B.C. they threw off the Tarquinian kings and they organized themselves in much the same way that the early... Israelites organized themselves. And Pompey, when he came shortly before Christ, uh, at the request of the king or a king of Judea, he recognized the law because they were already familiar with it. This idea of how to become a free republic. And so understanding what a republic truly is, because the United States is not a republic today. Like I said, in the American Creed, it says, I believe in the United States, a democracy within a republic. And briefly, I'll just point out that the Supreme Court cases, which I've already cited some here in reference to this definition on the page at preparingyou.com on nationalism, that uh, if you look at the Supreme Court cases prior to the Civil War, the people were not a party to the Constitution. That's that's an amazing revelation. When I read that, I realized, oh my gosh, I was under uh, a delusion. Thinking that we the people had reference to the average American living on his land in peace simple. It did not. And when I read that line from uh, March of Democracy by James Truslow Adams, uh, I did not understand it at first when it said that the average American living on his farm in fee simple was becoming a tough nut for an imperial power to crack. Well, the nut has been cracked. But we cracked it ourselves because we strayed from the same principles and values that a republic, a free nation, needs to have. And that's why I'm mentioning these things where a society has certain values. And, and I pointed out that, you know, this difference between patriotism and nationalism makes that distinction. Now, there's usually if there's nationalism, there's also patriotism. But nationalism has a, a unity by way of culture, cultural background, including language and heritage. But patriotism pertains to this love for a nation with more emphasis on values and beliefs. Well, the values of modern Americans, the modern American youth, are moving towards socialism and communism. 
values have been changed and mostly by the public schools and by the apathy of their parents who sent their children away to be taught by people they did not even know. And, yeah, some people say, well, I was, you know, checking my kids all the time. I mean, how many of the parents out there have read all the school books and read the study programs of the teachers? You've relinquished your responsibility and now you're reaping the cause and effect of that sloth. Uh, you know, back to this idea of nationalism. Now, I'm not going to use the word nationalism in reference to the kingdom of God. But I'm, I'm using them in the same context of this explanation so that you get a better understanding of the fact that to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior is not just a phrase. You cannot tell me that you are accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior while you're looking to somebody else for all your benefits and obtaining those benefits through covetous practices tells me you do not have the same values and beliefs of Jesus Christ. James or George Orwell said that uh, you know that nationalism is the worst enemy of peace because we develop patriotism towards our nation rather than towards those values and beliefs of Christ. That we start saying things like, you cannot say I've accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, He's my King, etc. While you're professing uh, different values than Christ. While you're saying it's okay to covet my neighbor's goods through the agency of men who exercise authority. It's not okay to covet your neighbor's goods. That's going contrary to the directives of Christ. And that didn't just start in the last couple of years. It's been going on for over a century in America on a major way. And we're now reaping the rewards of that apostasy of Christianity. And we need to repent of that. So I have a section on the page talking about this susceptible, uh, you know, this meaning. Because it says that we would be susceptible of the obligations and rights. So what are the obligations and rights? What are the natural obligations of a free people? What are the rights, the natural rights, the endowed rights of a free people? In this first definition, we see that nations may simply be societies of men united together for the purpose of promoting their mutual safety and advantage by the joint efforts of their combined strength. When Paul was taking supplies and Barnabas was taking supplies to the congregations in, in other parts of the country, in Galatia and Corinth, etc., because there was a dearth in the land, they had a combined effort that that brought the the power and strength of Christians who were not suffering under those dirths to those that were. But because they had the values of Christ, they did it with free will offerings. If you have the values of Nimrod, you'll do it through forced offerings. If you have the values of King Herod, you will do it through forced offerings. If you have the value of tyrants... 
You will think it's absolutely okay to take away from my neighbor to provide what I think is good. Right now, in the valley north of us, they're going to be facing a vote to fund the EMTs and the ambulance service through taxation. And even though they're in a very rural area, uh, with uh, they will have a higher tax rate than the people who live in the county capital, which is Lakeview, which is is a township. It's not an incorporated city, but they have sidewalks and everything. The tax rate in North Lake will be higher than theirs, or at least equal to, and they will not have the means to do other things. They will give up that power or means without, and they're actually considering this, taxing their neighbor, forcing their neighbor to contribute to what they think is a worthy cause. But if you think it's okay to force your neighbor at whatever cause, you don't have the values of Christ. Because the values of of Christ require that you give your neighbor the right to choose, to contribute or not. Because the values of Christ said you are not to exercise authority one over the other. So under that definition that we just read, or at least that part of it, or most of it, the early Christian church and the early Christians were virtually a nation. Because they had this, they were promoting the mutual safety and advantage with a joint effort, a daily ministration to take care of the needy of their society. And we clearly see them doing it, Paul doing it. I don't see... I don't see uh, Franklin Graham doing it. I don't see Joel Olstein doing it. I don't. I don't even see the Pope doing it. Yeah, that was one of the things the deputy brought up. He went and visited uh, uh, Peter's Basilica, and he was going around looking at everything, and he was thinking like, "What is this?" And he was seeing these tombs and and art of inlaid gold everywhere, all this wealth and. Artifacts and everything, and like it was just foreign to him to think that all this wealth is in the hands of the church. That's not the way Christ would have done it. Why? When did Christ did, did he get laid in a golden sepulcher? <laughs> you know, uh, no, it's it's crazy. We've gone so far away that the the even the Catholics can't see like uh, there's something wrong with this. But that deputy, when he was walking to the Basilica of Peter, he was thinking like, this is not what Christ was all about. <laughs> he was shocked. I thought it was, I just took a chuckle when I was listening to him describe it. You could see the bewilderment on his face. But the modern definition of the church would even tell you this. If you, if you looked it up in a legal dictionary, the definition of church... You know, not the building, but, you know, the church doesn't mean building. It means the called out. The apostles, the little flock, were called out. They were the church. It's not a building. It's it's men who are called out to do what Christ commanded they do. That's the church. And the church in general would be all the congregations that support those men through free will offerings, through charity. And... What are those supporting those men to do what? Just 
you know, give sermons? No, to actually take care of the needy in the act of pure religion. That's what religion is, the care, how you take care of the needy of your society. How you provide for the needy of your society. The safety and well-being of the needy of your society. That's what religion is. That's why I mentioned FDR was taking care of the needy of society. But that was public religion. And it was provided for by forced offerings. Which is what Herod had set up with the Pharisees. And which is why the Corban of the Pharisees, the sacrifice of the Pharisees, that's what Corban means, was making the word of God in effect because it wasn't free will offerings. You cannot have a free nation that provides the welfare of the people through forced offerings. That is going to create a cognitive dissonance. You're not free if you have the power to force your neighbor to provide you with EMT service or public schools or welfare or social security That's not a free nation. That's not a free society. Christ was starting a free society and he was showing people how to do this. So what is this definition of the church? Well, if you read it in Blacks, it's church in its most general sense. As I mentioned that, there's a general sense. Is the religious society founded and established by Jesus Christ to perceive, preserve, and propagate his doctrines and ordinances? And see, most churches, like I say, if you go look at their, uh, you know, their bylaws or their accords or their doctrinal statements, I find most of them have less than 10% of the context is quotes from Jesus. Less than 10%. Very few of them. And and really, the church should only be quotes from Jesus. I mean, the doctrine of the church is only what Jesus actually taught. You got four Gospels that should give you adequate doctrines. You don't need to make up new doctrines like you see them doing at the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Trent. They were making up doctrines. And they were explaining and excusing it. Just like I was saying, you know, was Jesus in the tomb for three days and three nights? And everybody I see writing about this, they leave out stuff. And they they say, well, we need to assume. If you're assuming, you're not dealing with proof. Not that I think it's extremely important, but it may be important to take a look at how people get so deluded by straining at gnats and swallowing a camel. Because what Christ called the weightier matters is, it seems to be far more important than the three days, three nights. And I have an answer on the three days, three nights. But we'll have to save that for another time. I'll keep you in suspense. But, uh, so the church in the most general sense is propagating the doctrines of Christ, the ordinances of Christ, the commands of Christ. And he commanded that his apostles make the people sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands so that those people will become a part of that society. They're not the church, but in the general sense, they are the church. Because the church has no way of providing pure religion without the free will contributions of the people in free assemblies. You see, that's the church is the corporation of Christ, but the church in general is the kingdom of God. If the people follow the values and precepts of God 
and take care of one another through love or charity or faith and hope, which is what we're commanded to do. The definition goes on to say that the church is a body or community of Christians united under one form of government. This is the definition today in blacks. It's in blacks ninth and then blacks uh, counting backwards eight, seven, six, five, four, three. It's in all these. It's a body or community of Christians united under one form of government by the profession of one faith and the observance of the same rituals and ceremonies. Those rituals and ceremonies are and include taking care of the widows and orphans through pure religion. And your religion is only pure if it is unspotted by the world. And the word world there is constitutional order and system of government, which means unspotted by the systems of FDR and LBJ. If they're unspotted by those systems, which are depend upon forced contributions, which was the Corbin of the Pharisees, then you may be a part of the church. Then it might be true that you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But if you're still looking to men who exercise authority, then that statement is a lie. Now, you may believe the lie. And you may not be a liar, except in fact. But in spirit, you may be just under a strong delusion. But now that I'm saying this, you have a chance to repent, which is thinking differently. But that you need to implement that as Christ commanded, which is to sit down in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands and start providing for one another and becoming independent of those people who have been giving you and your father and your grandfather everything they wanted by taking away from your neighbor and your neighbor, because they're doing it by borrowing money, they're taking away from your neighbor's, neighbor's children and grandchildren. And when you do that, you will be given eyes to see. If you begin to understand what I'm talking about and you do not act upon it, I just had this conversation with somebody in Idaho last night. You, if you begin to see the truth of the gospel, of the kingdom, Because that's what it was called. The gospel of the kingdom. The government of God. The nation of God. The peculiar people of God. And you begin to see it. That we need to be taking care of the widows and orphans and needy of our society in pure religion. Instead of public religion. Then. You will be given eyes to see. And ears to hear. More. And you will not be sitting in darkness. If you do not act, if you just say, Lord, Lord, say, I believe in the Trinity, I believe in God the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, I believe whatever you say. If you're just saying, Lord, Lord, but not doing the will of the Father, you will remain sitting in darkness. As a matter of fact, it will probably get a little darker. And and Christ says this. That you will backslide. Peter says you will become merchandise. Paul says you will have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. These people who want to say that Paul is this false prophet. Do they have a daily ministration that takes care of all the welfare of their people? 
Or are they going to men who exercise authority, who borrow money against the future of your children? Because if they do, they're back in the bondage of Egypt. Now, you, most everybody in America and Australia and South Africa and Austria and Sweden and Great Britain and all these countries, Italy, whatever, they're all back in the bondage of Egypt. 20% of their labor or more belongs to the government. They're back in Babylon. Babylon the Great, Nimrod. Who has made them human resources, merchandise. And and these traveling merchants of the earth have a full stock. We've already gotten that, right? I, I, I'm not going to tickle your ears about it. But if you repent, think differently. And we're showing you how Christ thought. Take care of one another out of love and charity and hope. Then you will not only have eyes to see and ears to hear, but you'll know what to do today and tomorrow and the next day. You will be on the way to the kingdom of God. Now, God's going to have to run out. You're not going to do this by your own efforts. But if you reject God, you may not be saved. So anyway, join us on the network. Uh, sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Start taking care of one another. Until then, peace on your house. And may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.